What up, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 133 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I sat down with Adam Spillane. Adam is a caver living in Phong Nha, Vietnam, and takes tours into the largest cave systems in the world. In fact, he was on the original expedition that discovered the largest cave in the world called Song Dong. Cavers are a really fascinating subculture of people, and getting to talk to Adam was super cool and really insightful and just uh, what they enjoy about discovering and climbing through these giant caverns under the earth. And it's just another great example of somebody who, by trade, you know, was an engineer, went to uni, and then figured out a way to take his passion, which is caving, and make it into a career and lifestyle. If you're a first-time listener, please pull out your phone and hit the subscribe button. When this episode is finished, rating and commenting on it really helps me out within the ratings on iTunes. So mean a lot to me if you did that as well. And if you haven't gotten a Misfits and Rejects t-shirt yet, please head over to misfitsandrejects.com backslash shop and pick one up. And with that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Adam Spillane. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm joined by Adam Spillane, a caver here in Phong Nha, Vietnam, who, just through the rumors of town, sound like somebody who spent a lot of time in the caves here, and I thought it'd be really cool to bring him on. And because this is basically why people come here, caving, um, I think it's going to be nice for the audience and just tourists in general gets a better idea of like why you're here, what you do, and why it's special to you. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, man. Um, originally from the UK. Yep. Did you get your start caving in the UK? Yes, I started caving in the UK when I was a kid and kind of didn't think any more about it. Then when I went to university, there was a caving club there and thought I remember enjoying that and I've been caving kind of since then. Yeah, can you talk to the audience a little bit about what that means? Like, where'd you grow up specifically in the UK? So I grew up in London, and I went away with school for the weekend and went caving, climbing, canoeing, abseiling when I was about 10 years old and didn't think any more about it. This is pre-internet. I couldn't Google caving club or anything. And then I went to university in Sheffield in the north of England, and there was a caving club there, and I remembered enjoying it. So I joined with them and... That was kind of the start of it. What was the biggest enjoyment you got from caving? Uh, initially, I don't, I don't really know. It's a, it's a very social thing. It's a good way of getting exercise. But more recently, it's, it's about finding new caves. It's about exploring. It's about going places where nobody's been before. I mean, to be honest, as just an observer, is it really a social thing? Or do you like to disappear in a cave by yourself and like, not be found by people? No, there's a big social aspect to it. It's not an, it's, it's not something you can do by yourself. I mean, for kind of safety reasons, you should probably go caving with other people, but also if you're going into a deep or long cave, you need a lot of equipment, so you need a lot of people to carry it. That's interesting. I'd like to actually get really in depth, like on the aspects and the little nuances of what being a caver, what caving really means, because yeah, like, so you go into a cave to explore it. As somebody who is enjoying this experience, what is that kind of 
end goal or thing that you're getting the most thrill from, like maybe discovering treasure, like discovering something that's never been seen before? Like, what is it that really you go into seeking out? It's discovering something that nobody's seen before. It's expanding human knowledge. When when you explore a cave for the first time, you make a map, and then following on from that, you take photos and maybe video. You might see animals, plants that you've never seen before, because animals and plants, if they're in a cave, they tend to be in that cave only, because it's very difficult for them to move from cave to get cave. So they evolve as different species. What kind of animals are you going to find in a cave? Like, are they like microorganisms? Or are they like actual furry animals that crawl around the floor? Uh, not furry, but <laughs> but not all microorganisms. You find fish and shrimps and lots of creepy crawlies, spiders, crickets, um, pill bugs, centipedes. Are you? Do you have a scientific background? I mean, is this something that you've also studied? No, I'm an I'm an engineer by training, but I've got an interest in geology, and I've developed more of an interest in archaeology and cave biology as a result of doing this. Yeah, so you studied engineering, it sounds like. Yeah. You said at Sheffield, is that correct? Yes. And then you joined the caving club there, so you were exploring caves in England. Um, how many caves have you explored in different continents? Like, how many different parts of the world have you gone to just for caving? So... Exploring caves in England, there are a lot of cavers in England, and there are a lot of caves, and most of them have been explored. I've only explored originally very few caves in the UK, but I've been to lots of places in Europe and Asia exploring caves, and I've been to the Middle East on archaeological surveys, so caves that were already known about, but looking for archaeology in them. What... What makes you specialize or a specialist in, in such that people would invite you on their like caving adventure because you have what skill set? Um, I've got the skill set of a of a caver, so I'm confident in the darkness. I'm safe and I I know what I'm doing. I'm I'm experienced at it. And well, let's be honest, like. Was it just sheer circumstance that you got invited here to explore these caves originally? Because, I mean, you were, you were well, on the first expedition, I've understood, to be exploring the biggest cave in the world. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And yes, it was kind of chance that that, that happened. But in 2005, I was kind of at a loose end and I wanted to come on a new caving expedition, new, new to me, and I contacted people who've been organizing expeditions to Vietnam since 1990 and said, can I come in 2005? And they said, yes, you can come. And then in 2009, when we discovered Sondong, I was just lucky to be one of the five people who were on that particular trip. Other people on that expedition were going to other caves somewhere in this national park on the same day. I was just lucky that I was on that one. If I'd been somewhere else, I'd have found something else. That's interesting. So is it true you were the first one to actually step foot in the cave? Like, yeah, there were there were five five of us originally. I can't honestly remember whether it was first or second. There are certain parts of the cave where I'm very confident. Yes, I know I was there first. Uh -huh. So the Songdong, is that's what it's called. That's the biggest cave in the world. How are caves measured? How do you just how do you become the biggest cave in the world? So Caves are measured by making a map, 
use a, a compass and an inclinometer and a tape measure. Nowadays we use a laser tape measure and you make a map of it and from that you can work out the size. More recently people have started using full engineering laser scans to do it but that's not really a practical thing to do on original exploration because it's too expensive and too slow and too big and bulky. So yeah, then how long did it take you to actually kind of map this? Have you mapped the whole thing? So I mean, we, we've mapped almost the whole thing. So in 2009 and 2010, we made maps of almost all of it. We made a map of a very small part of it last year. And then at the beginning of April, we've got some divers coming out here from the UK to go and map some of the underwater passages that we haven't mapped so far. Are these underwater passages connecting cave systems that you've also explored? Do you think there might be some connectivity there? Theoretically, the underwater passage we're going to be exploring connects Sondong to Hangtung, another cave that was explored in the early, mid-90s. And that will make Sondong bigger in terms of overall volume, which is one of the records it currently holds. The... Um the years in which you're talking about, like 1990 to 2005, when you came and explored, 1990 being obviously 15 years prior, it sounds like, although you were the first expedition into the cave, it sounds like people knew of this cave prior to you going into it. Is that what I'm understanding? Yeah. So the story goes that Ho Kang, a, a local villager here, he found Sondong Cave in 1990 when he was sheltering from a storm but it didn't hold any interest for him. It was a convenient place to shelter, and he basically forgot about it. And then in 2005, when I first came out here, his brother-in-law introduced him to the expedition, and he said, yeah, I know loads of caves in the National Park, but I don't go there any anymore. Um, and we asked him to, um, can you go and find them again and take us to them? And what was that like? Were you like with machetes and like Indiana Jones, like bushwhacking through like thick, dense jungle? Or is there like a path that leads right to it? Um, what we do is we let the Vietnamese go and refine the cave entrances first. So I believe he refound Son Dong again in 2008. It wasn't a particular priority to him. He went and found other caves as well. And he cut a rudimentary path to it. And then in 2009, we went there. And since then, since tours have been going there, obviously the path has got a lot better and we've done a lot more work with machetes. So yeah, okay, so then I, I lost track of dates. So 2005 is when you came, but you actually just like went into Sundong in 2009, you said? Yes. So it took four years for you to actually kind of make it into that cave specifically? It, it, took, it took four years for Ho Kang to, to find it again. Really? When, he wasn't looking non-stop for four years. He had other caves to go and look for. I don't know how much time he spent finding. It's not in a very obvious location. It's a long, it's a long, long way up above the river where the water goes into it. Really? That's actually really interesting to me. So, I mean, as an explorer, as somebody searching for these things, I mean, geography doesn't necessarily dictate where you're going to find an opening, it sounds like. It just, they appear in various places and then you go into them. Yes, so geography dictates and geology dictates where the cave passage is, but where the entrance that's passable by a human to get into it, that's pretty much a matter of chance. Okay. What's, 
within the cave systems that you've discovered here, what's the most fascinating aspect of them for you specifically? Like, I know there's that one in like what Chihuahua, Mexico, that has all the crystals in it. Um, do you have anything similar to that, or is there something that you find super interesting about the cave systems here? Here you get here the cave systems. They're very, very big. That's the main spectacular thing about them. The fact that I've ended up out here working is because there was the chance of work out here. But I've been caving in many other places in the world, which, in some ways, are more satisfying caving. I see. But got offered a job here, which is why I'm here. <laughs> yeah, let's go back to a little bit about pre-life Vietnam, because you've been here for. I mean, you got here what 2005, and you've never really left like how is your development here growing no so 2005 i first came out here and apart from 2008 came out here for four to six weeks each year on caving expeditions looking for new caves in the and you maintained a job back in the uk maintained a job back in the uk i'm a structural engineer working most most recently when i was a, an engineer working on the railroads in the uk and then in 2014, I was offered the chance of a job out here, and I was the time in my life when I could afford to take a job out here. I didn't have a, a huge mortgage on a house. I didn't have kids in school or anything like that. So I thought, I'll, I'll try it. So the first year I came out here, I actually brought a laptop out from work here, and I did do some work writing reports while I was out here, and then... After the first season working out here, I did go back and work in an office back in the UK. And I brought laptop out here again the second year and did a little less work then. And then when I went back after, after that season, I gave them the laptop back and said, I'm done. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> That's interesting because it sounds like you have done a lot of traveling, a lot of exploring um, over the years to where... To come to that conclusion at that point where you really wanted to like cut loose from the mainstream, your job as an engineer, um, it just sounds like the opportunity was there and you took it or was there always kind of a desire to maybe break free from that system back in the UK? There was a desire to break fr free. I, I could see a few years beforehand that possibly the opportunity might present itself. Therefore, I sorted out my life in such a way that... If it did present itself, I could say yes. I'm lucky that I'm a structural engineer, so I work in steel and concrete, which has been the same for many, many years and is likely to stay the same for a long time. So it's not something where I have to keep my knowledge up to date. I, I do always have it as something to fall back on. I haven't burnt my bridges completely. So then this lifestyle, it sounds like, could be quasi-permanent, more permanent? I mean, did you take the experience as, we'll see what happens, or this is kind of like how I want to live the rest of my life as a caver in Fengyao, or wherever your skill set takes you around the world as a caver? Um, part, part, partly that, but I, I do love living in Fengyao, and, and if, I don't know, if things happened and I was no longer working as a cave guide here, I'd I know that I could go back to engineering and I'd probably go back to engineering and I'd probably just stick around Fonyar and work remotely because it's probably something I can do. That's pretty cool. Um, as far as like compensation goes, like engineer, caver, are you, where are you making the money? Like, I'm making the money in engineering, but if I'm being an engineer in the UK, I'm spending a lot of money. Uh -huh. Here, 
I get paid enough over the eight-month season that it can support me for a year as long as I'm not too extravagant. Cool. So, yeah, just to, like, for the audience to understand, you were, I'm interested because but Oxalis is who you work for here. Is that correct? Yep, I work for That's the name of the caving company you work for. Yes. There's other caving companies, and what I've learned recently is that you've, you work with the Vietnamese government in that you bid for a contract every year to take tours specifically to certain caves. Is that correct? That's correct. So in the National Park here, there are 300-odd caves, about 20 or so of them are, are open to tourism, and, and each is operated by a, a single operator, and those are the contracts to run those are issued on year or more basis. I, I think the current contract for Sondong is a three-year contract. that we've Which is got. what your company exclusively holds. Yeah, so Oxalis exclusively holds the contract for Sondong and for Hangen and for Hangvar and Nertnet and other companies hold contracts for right. other caves. So then Oxalis is going to those specific caves and it's what, like a three or four day trek? Like all-inclusive tour? I guess I, wanna, I want the audience to understand what it actually yeah. entails. So the tour to Sondong is a is a four day all inclusive trek with a a night in a hotel at either end and then three nights camping in caves on the tour. The the first night is in Hangen Cave and the second two nights are both in Sondong Cave. And that's what like thirty five hundred dollars per person. Three thousand dollars per person. Okay. And then you're leading these expeditions every single what is it? It's weekly. Yeah. So the. The, the tours go five times every 10 days, and I go on approximately one of those five trips. Okay. Um, and you're not getting sick of it? <laughs> um, I would get sick of it if I was just going in there on my own, if or, or if I was going in there with a load of people who'd already done it, but it's the people that make it. I'm introducing people to something that they're totally unfamiliar with, and barring very, very rare people. They all have a great time, and I enjoy making people have a great time, and they all seem to. Absolutely. The kind of history of the place, you know, with the Vietnam War and everything, is also quite interesting. Like, are there aspects of that that ever play into their experience as a guest? Like, going to these caves, were there ever, like, that lone Vietnamese guy who chose to live in the caves for whatever the amount of time that the Vietnam War was going on? Are there any kind of like side stories that you get to share with people that no one would ever know about? I mean, there are, there are certain things. This area of the world was very heavily bombed, and in the National Park, a lot of bombs were dropped. So talk about that a little bit. In the first dole line in Sondong, a dole line is where the cave roofs collapsed and it's open to the sky. We found a few pieces of bomb in there so at some point during the war someone decided to bomb that cave because they thought there was a battalion of Vietnamese hiding in it so that's always a bit of a talking point and people tend to ask was it the bomb that made the roof collapse no it wasn't the bomb that made the roof collapse the bomb was dropped in 1960s or 70s and the roof collapsed about half a million years ago oh really interesting and that's just done by just um however you uh date that with carbon dating or something like that um it's similar in quartz you have aluminium aluminium and beryllium and you can tell how long it's been exposed to the atmosphere or how long it's been exposed to cosmic rays and that will tell you how long it was since that roof collapse was That's really interesting do your um 
Does your family come visit you? I mean, are you coming from a family of adventurers or cavers or people who want to come visit you, hang out here and spend time with you? Or is it kind of like Adam's doing his thing and we're not interested? Uh, my mum and dad have been out to visit me once in the five years that I've been living here. I've got two brothers living back in Europe and both of them have kids. So they're kind of more attractive for my parents to go and to go and visit though. Most of us all my parents, they did say that they fancied coming out here again at some point. Oh, I've got quite a lot of friends coming to visit. So friends keep up with me. That's cool. Is there a place that you love, like, is the Mecca of caving someplace that you really want to go explore, or a cave that you really want to explore, or an area? I would. I would love to go and visit that Cave of the Crystals in, mm. in Mexico. It's currently, again, flooded and closed, I believe. And there's also there's a cave in New Mexico called Lechuguia Cave, which is probably or one of the best decorated caves in the world. And it's kind of a, a project that maybe at some point I'll go there. It's probably going to be quite a, a difficult thing to organize. I'll probably have to go and live in the U.S. for a while to ingratiate myself with the right people. It's pretty highly controlled, but I do know some people who've been in there a few times. Yeah, I mean, as far as like a caver community, are they apprehensive to letting you into their circles of knowledge or exploration? Um, if you wanted to go explore that cave in Arizona, like, how does that work? Um, not, not, not really. It's just that cavers are, are kind of, or can be slightly proprietary and they, they look after their own caves and, and it seems to be that in this part of Vietnam and just over the border in Laos, it's British cavers who come here. Americans cave in Mexico, Russians cave in Russia and Ukraine and Turkey. And it just a uh, French cave in New Guinea and in south of South America. It's just different nationalities seem to have kind of cordoned off bits of the globe for themselves. So they bring in their own kind of yeah. friends and family or whatever it may be to... Yeah, that's, that's the thing. It, it's, me, it's knowing someone who knows someone and getting them to trust you. So then the one in Arizona that you just mentioned, is there more to be explored or is it just you want to see it? Um, it's in New Mexico. Oh, sorry, New Mexico. I apologize. Um, there's, there's more to be explored. There's more work being done in there all the time but it's very highly controlled environment and as as caves get bigger they get harder to explore because the exploration leads are further from the entrance interesting and obviously getting lost is the biggest concern when you the farther you go the harder it is to find your way back kind of thing like or i mean i there's probably also like gases and things that we wouldn't think about as novice like cavers <laughs> um potentially there are there are gases. It's normally buildup of carbon dioxide if there is gases in caves, but it's pretty rare generally. As for getting lost, I appear to have a very good memory for finding my way back, or, or more specifically, if I see something new, I know it's new. I've taken wrong turns in big caves in France, and I haven't gone more than 20 paces before realizing that I've taken a wrong turn. When you're exploring, of course, it's you cannot take a wrong turn because you're going somewhere new. Therefore, everywhere is the right direction. Right. 
it's interesting to me. I've only done the Paradise Cave, which is a very common one here for a lot of people mm-hmm. like myself. When you go in, obviously it's been built up, captured a lot of tourist attention, and there's lights everywhere, right? And I'm always thinking about you, for example, walking to a dark cave where you just have your headlamp or whatever lights your way. And with the size of the caves here, are you actually capable of really seeing the, whole, the vastness of these, these spaces? On, on your own, no, you can't really. So you have to spread out and speak to each other. When we were originally exploring Sandong, I did get briefly lost at, at one point. I walked around in a circle in a sandy area and I, I knew that I'd made a mistake when I found my footprints again. So I could then reorientate myself and take a bit more care <laughs> and make sure I did go the right way. And then what, you're just like, you holler out, hey, I'm over here, and then you try to follow the voices back? or you... um, I was actually trying to go away from the voices. I was going back to get my camera. I'd left my camera on a, on a ledge before a short swim, thinking that if the cave didn't go much further, there wasn't any point in risking my camera getting wet, so I was going back on my own to get my camera. So you opted for leaving your camera, getting in water, and it's completely dark, swimming to another side, <laughs> climbing out to explore more. Like, I'm a surfer, so I, I mean, I have a lot of people who think of what I'm doing as dangerous because there's sharks and things you can't see, but diving into water that's in a cave, like, that sounds scary to me. It can, it can be scary. Certainly in, in caves that are very big, when you're swimming just out into the middle of the water and you can't see the walls, you can't see the roof, it's kind of worrying luckily i'm a reasonably good swimmer so i'm quite happy doing it the the scariest underwater or, or underground water i've ever been in was in a cave in in new guinea where there was a big waterfall falling into a lake so was swimming across a lake which had big waves on it that was Un- underground underground whoa dude that sounds exciting it was exciting but it was it was scary it was it was a very, very long way from home. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, have you had any bad experiences, things that you had to get, like, medevaced out of situations for? Or has it always been kind of you've taken your care and, and made it safe for yourself and everybody else? I've always been able to, to get out of caves on my own. I've been trapped for a few hours due to flooding on one occasion. I've broken a few minor bones that don't really count. And had to get myself out. The flooding thing's interesting considering the situation that recently happened in Thailand with the, the soccer team or whatever that wandered mm. into that cave. Um, as somebody stuck in a cave because of flooding, obviously water levels rise. How did you know you were going to be okay just to wait it out for a few hours? This was in a, in a cave in the UK and the weather on that day was much much worse than it had been at any point in the previous five years and and that wasn't forecast so we were a little bit unlucky to get caught out but also we knew that if we did get stuck in that cave there were plenty of places to wait it out it only becomes a problem if the cave floods to the roof or large sections of the cave flood to the roof and you and there isn't anywhere safe to take refuge so then how much space did you have when you were sitting there waiting out i mean was it 
Were you pushed up against the ceiling, or were you just kind of like sitting there dry as a bone? Oh, for it? Sitting there dry as a bone, there was just a very short section quite close to the entrance that just was completely underwater, and the rest of the cave was dry and relatively warm. Could you have swam it if you had to, or was it just complete like chaos, like uh, river kind of conditions? No, the, the the flow of water was was too strong. There's no, there was no possible way we were getting out. But we were never going to be stuck there for very long. I see. That's really cool, man. Such an interesting subculture. People who want to do this, like, <laughs> sounds tremendously claustrophobic to me. Like, I don't consider myself claustrophobic, but I don't think I have any desire to really go deeps into the depths of a cave and explore it. Um. I mean, are you ever laying, you know, on your belly in these little cracks, like with the weight of the world on your shoulders trying to get through? Occasionally, I have been physically stuck in caves, which... Panicking or just just relaxing, trying to get through it? Relaxing, trying to get through and not being able to relax and, and get through, which is pretty unpleasant. Yeah. So what do you do? On that, on that occasion, <laughs> I did re- require properly rescuing, and that was washing up liquid and brute force. <laughs> Whoa, so you were proper stuck. Proper, proper stuck. Interesting. Fuck, that sounds like pure panic to me, man. Um, I wasn't panicking. I was cold and uncomfortable. Uh, yeah. But I kind of resigned myself to the fact that panicking wasn't going to get me anywhere. Yeah, the, the conditions are always pretty cold, right, in caves? I mean, you're always, what, bundled up or...? It, it depends. C- caves are the annual average temperature of the surrounding area. So in Vietnam, the, the caves are in the kind of 22 degrees Celsius range. In the UK, they're about 9 degrees Celsius. In caves in the Alps, they're kind of 1, 2 degrees, and warmest ones I've been in are in the desert in Australia, and they're kind of 30 degrees Celsius, so those are very warm indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess you just all, you, you know the conditions more or less before you go in as far yeah. as temperature goes. So you yeah, you know the conditions, and you dress appropriately. Yeah. You don't want to be t- too warm, but you want to have sufficient clothing so that if you are stationary for whatever reason you don't start cooling down too much. sounds like you pretty much do what you like. I mean, as far as, like, your job is something you enjoy doing. I mean, it also sounds like you enjoyed engineering, so could you take it or leave it? Or or would you rather be doing this? In recent years, I really enjoyed doing the engineering because, because I was doing this out here. When I went back to engineering temporarily, I got to do engineering. Whereas when I was working engineering as a job, I wasn't really doing engineering. I was a project manager. I shuffled spreadsheets, which I didn't really enjoy. Right. I think that's how a lot of people feel. With your current lifestyle design, current lifestyle that you're living now, um, and if somebody out there listening right now would love to create a life like yours, I mean, it sounds like you're kind of living your passion. You enjoy what you do. You're flexible enough to see that maybe this will continue on, maybe it won't. What kind of advice would you give them if they said, like, I want to be a caver too, or I want to go out and be whatever, I want to be abroad in another country doing what this guy's doing. Could you give them advice on how to start or what to do or, or yeah. motivate um, them? If you want to be a caver, join, join a local caving club and start going caving. If you want to 
get away and live abroad or do the job you you love, make your make your hobby pay. What I would say is organize the rest of your life so that if the opportunity comes, you're able to take it or make the opportunity for yourself. Some people have, right, can make the opportunity for themselves. It's it's a lot harder to see with caving. Cave tourism is a very, very new thing. And it's very difficult. Very few people have made money from caving in the past, whereas a lot of other outdoor sports, there's more obvious ways to do it. There is working as a guide. There are all sorts of guides doing all sorts of things. And then there's obviously professional sports, which uh, lots of people try, but <laughs> I guess not a lot of people make it. I mean, you're a professional caver. I mean, that's a sport in itself. Yeah. Yes, I'm a professional caver, but when I, when I was at university, I did a lot of climbing as well, and I knew a lot of people who were professional climbers, so they were sponsored to go climbing, and they wore the right clothes, and they got filmed, and they got photos taken of them, and that was their job, whereas I'm more of a guide showing other people around, which is a kind of different aspect of professional sport. Who's, who would be your ideal sponsor? If somebody came to you and said, I'm going to give you whatever you want as a caver, who would you want to be sponsored by? I think Red Bull would have to be it more and more nowadays. Red Bull has become interested in the kind of more niche sports, and I've seen Red Bull-sponsored cave kayaking, and I've seen Red Bull-sponsored rock climbing out of caves. So I think possibly the, the next thing is caving as a as a whole thing, but caving has a, it has a bit of an image problem, but also it, it's not very photogenic because it's dark, so it's very difficult to film it well and make it exciting. Some people do manage to do that, but it's not a very dynamic process when it's happening because it takes a very long time to set up lights. <laughs> well, we're going to make a little shout out to Red Bull. Hopefully they'll, uh, <laughs> they'll recognize your endeavors here in Phong Nha and uh, send you some product or money or a nice helmet with the Red Bull logo on it. <laughs> nice helmet with the Red Bull logo on it. And do. Cool. Thank you, Adam, for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Awesome, Adam. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your love of caves and your lifestyle with us. It's super impressive that you have found a way to make a living off of doing what you love in a really cool country like Vietnam and hats off to you. If you're a first time listener, please pull out your phone, hit the subscribe button. If you haven't yet gotten a Misfits and Rejects t-shirt, head over to misfitsandrejects.com backslash shop and pick one up and stay tuned for next week's episode. More really cool stories coming at you from Phong Nha. Please remember, I think you all are so very beautiful. I hope these stories are inspiring you to think about your life situation and take that first step into the unknown that will hopefully carry you to that lifestyle that you've always dreamed of. And I'll see you next week. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation where you're at and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but 
when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.